Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. You see it on the news. You see it on the paper. You see it on Facebook. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. I ran into her that summer, right? Because she'd come in for drinks and stuff. And I would chat with her. She was so friendly. She was normal. Sure, she was wearing black. The creepy thing was she had these weird guys always behind her. She was totally just going through a regular teenage rebellion. The only very problematic thing is she did start to date older men. Like, I'm talking older, like mid-20s, like 24, 25. They were freaking creepy AF. I mean, creepy vibes. Like, I didn't want to be alone with him. And that, I think, is what set her mom up. Her mom was like, no, we're not doing this. And I think she tried to stop it. Is that at least the rumor around town? Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Fanick. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter. How are we doing today? We are moving and grooving today. We're moving and grooving. We're both exhausted for different reasons. I woke up to an earthquake last night. For anybody that doesn't live in California, my apartment was shaken like crazy at like 2 a.m. It's such a weird feeling. I like them. I do I'm too. into it. Yeah. I do too. And except for then I tried to fall back asleep and I started having nightmares that because I live on the water and I started having nightmares that like, what if the big one's coming and yeah. then I get stuck in a tidal wave? Yeah. So that's kind of like where my thought process was after it happened. That's fair. That's my nightmare. It's my nightmare too. And I Deep impact the movie really messed me up. Absolutely. That shot of the wave going over the Empire State Building. Get out of here. No, it's probably one of the worst ways to die. That is one of my recurring nightmares is getting stuck in a like a massive, massive tidal wave. It's not Ugh, a good tsunami, way to Tsunami, all of it. Terrifying. No, Oof, thank you. Not good. Um, okay, do you want to know what day it is today? Yes. So today is February 1st. Happy February. I'm happy we're getting out of this winter. I'm so fucking over it. February 1st, it's change your password day, which is probably a good day for all to you know, change that password that you've been using since you were 16, add another number to it. Or an exclamation point. Yep. It's like, there's that meme that's like, password when I was 15, dolphin. Password when I was 35, dolphin, one, two, exclamation, exclamation. point. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's also G.I. Joe Day, Hula and the Kula Day. Ooh. And this is what I, it goes along with our episode today, National Baked Alaska Day. Now, oh, do you want to know what that is? Because I didn't. I know baked Alaska is a food. Yes, I didn't know that. <laughs> baked Alaska is a dessert consisting of sponge cake covered with a thick slab of ice cream with meringue on top. Sounds oh, weird. sounds kind of good, but a little too sweet for my liking. The picture, if I get these from checkiday.com, that's where I find my days. If you want to look on there, the picture of the National Baked Alaska looks disgusting. All right. So not for us, but to those of you who love it, no shame. Yes. It's also National Dark Chocolate Day, which is more for me. 
and uh, National Serpent Day. And last, there's a lot of good days. Spunky Old Broads Day. Oh, well, that's right for us. I love that. That'll be but us. Young until Broads. We're, until we're, you know, hundreds of years old. Exactly. Okay. Well, there's so many good days, but that is enough of that. So let's turn on the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. Everybody knows the phrase, mama's boy or daddy's girl. But what about the unique relationship between mothers and their daughters? Mothers see so much of themselves in their daughters. In that way, a mother's daughter can be her mirror in a lot of ways. She sees her past experiences through her younger self, falling in love, becoming a strong woman, and looking in that mirror can be so rewarding for a mother. But it can also be frustrating watching your daughter make the same mistakes you made, or even worse mistakes. Moms want to save their daughters from pain. They want to help them navigate their problems. But when their daughter doesn't listen, and they won't listen, what then? And what happens when they refuse to take advice even when they desperately need it? What exactly is a mother to do? Take drastic measures? And if so, how will that daughter respond? So we begin today's case on November 14th of 2004. So two weeks earlier, George W. Bush was reelected as president of the United States. And while most fast food restaurants were trying to become a little bit more health conscious, Hardee's, which is Carl's Jr., I think as well, released its controversial calorie-filled monster thick burger. I'd really like to know what that it? entailed. <laughs> yeah. Let's find it. Oh my God, I need to they find it. They should have it. spelt it with a Q. Oh, D-H-I-Q burger. Yes. Well, I think that was before, you know, Theok. Right. So people were jamming out to My Boo by Usher and Alicia Keys and Drop It Like It's Hot by Snoop Dogg. And in theaters, action-packed movies were very popular with Nicolas Cage's National Treasure and Pixar's The Incredibles were both drawing in huge crowds. And here's a little fun fact for you. In The Incredibles... Edna Mode had this famous no capes rule, and this began because apparently it's very hard to animate capes. So there's a little wrinkle for your brain today. Certainly is. So the setting for today's case is Craig, Alaska. And Craig is a small fishing town of approximately a thousand people located on the Prince of Wales Island in southeastern Alaska. And it's kind of difficult to travel there. So first, you have to fly or ferry into Ketchikan, Alaska, which is on a different island 75 miles east of Craig. Then you have to take a float plane into the village. But once you finally get to Craig, it's stunning. Picture blue skies teeming with Alaskan birds, bears roaming on green hills, and endless water filled with humpback whales. So for nature lovers, Craig has everything. But something else Craig has? An oddly high crime rate. In the past 10 years, Craig has had anywhere from two to five times more violent crime than the average U.S. city. But that's not really uncommon in Alaska. In fact, according to the National Crime Information Center, quote, a person is more likely to be murdered in Alaska than any other state. So our first degree for today's case is named Monica. And while Monica lives in Seattle, she is from Craig. She grew up there and lived there again during the pandemic. And since Seattle is relatively close to southeastern Alaska, Monica still visits Craig often. From Alaska, it's like the closest 
city in the continental. And so we'd fly in here all the time. There's a big mountain behind our town, Sanahe Mountain. And you could just run up it. Like, I mean, okay. You don't run up it, but you, you know, it was just right there in your backyard, like five minutes to go do the beach trail or the mountain. And it was really, that was my favorite part of Alaska. Alaska is vastly different from the rest of the United States. It's twice as big as Texas, with only 3% of Texas's population. So with over 660,000 square miles of space and less than 1 million people, the state is quiet, it's rural, and it's hard to get around. Some smaller communities don't have police officers, so it can take days for someone to show up when a violent crime is reported. So because of that, Alaska feels a bit like the Wild West. And given the vastness of Alaska, people can essentially get away with things there than they couldn't anywhere else. And they do. Alaska has this like element of wild. (laughs) And, you know, bears are coming into town and flipping over dumpsters and stuff. And there's kind of this lawlessness. A lot of people go there because they don't want to be bothered by rules and they want to live by their own rules. So there's definitely this whole very independence, but also do not tell me what to do because I'm going to do what I want. There are so many rural and remote areas to get to because it's such a large state. You often have to fly in state troopers to these small, like, native villages. And so there's a whole village called Heidelberg. And then it's the Clinket people are in Klawak. That's what the raven says, Klawak. And then Craig was uh, colonized by a white dude named Craig. It's the largest town on the island of Prince of Wales. Just like all small towns, the people who lived in Craig interacted at local hotspots like the grocery store, the church, and the school. Hotspots. Hotspots. The grocery store. <laughs> so when Lori Waterman, a local special education teacher's aide, needed a babysitter for her two kids, she knew just who to call. 12-year-old Monica. After all, Monica's family already knew the Watermans. Monica's mom worked at the elementary school with Lori. And Lori's husband, Carl, who went by Doc, was a real estate agent. They had two kids, a 10-year-old boy and an 8-year-old girl. The Waterman boy was best friends with Monica's little brother. Everybody knows everybody in Craig. You know everybody in Heidelberg. You know everybody in Kowak. You just know everyone. And Lori, the mom, I knew her. Everyone knew her. She was super nice. She was worked in special education. And so she worked with my mom, who was the kindergarten teacher. Just really calm and chill and awesome. And the reason I knew her is because she had two children. And the oldest, they were my brother's best friends. I've always really been into kids. And, you know, I was already babysitting babies when I was like 10 and 11. And so they were like, you're a couple years older. You come babysit. Because, you know, and they just run around the house, eat them. It was actually very easy. But, you know, you feel like I'm like still in shock that they let children babysit children. The 90s, man. It's a wonder any of us survived, to be honest. <laughs> and as Monica got to know the Watermans better and better, she noticed a lot of similarities between them and her own family. A mom, dad, brother, and sister. The kids did well in school, had active social lives, and were friendly. The whole family went to church every Sunday. So from what Monica could see... The Watermans were utterly normal. In a lot of ways, they felt like they paralleled my family, right? They had everything. Their parents, 
fed them, made sure they did well in school. They did all the extracurriculars. They kept you busy, you know, playing all the sports. If you showed any kind of inclination, you were in sports, you had to do the band and you had to choose an instrument. Like, I mean, it was definitely rural Alaska. Education opportunities were not diverse, but they had incredibly involved parents, very much like my own. The daughter of the family, Rochelle, stood out to Monica. She was intelligent, well-spoken, and mature. Monica watched Rochelle grow into a promising young woman, and it seemed like Rochelle was going to do great things with her life. So I probably knew of her most of her life. She's really smart, very verbal child who would come up and tell you all sorts of arguments about all sorts of things. She was a really good kid who hung out with other good kids, and she was like part of the smart group of her class. Right. Classes are really small and Craig, they're like 20 kids, maybe. (laughs) And, you know, you kind of gravitate towards the ones that are actually more like you. And Rochelle had like kind of a great group of kids that like they didn't get into trouble. They were really academic, you know, high achievers and and really like gregarious and charming. Like Rochelle was like she would engage adults and everybody. She really didn't seem to be intimidated by much. She really seemed to get along with her mom and her dad. They got along great. When Monica eventually went to college in the Bay Area, she'd returned to her hometown of Craig to work at the local coffee shop each summer. And she saw everyone she knew. She saw the Waterman family all the time when they'd come in for a caffeine fix. And over the course of these summers, Monica noticed that Rochelle was going through a bit of a bit of a goth phase. I left when I was like 17, 18 and went to UC Santa Cruz. But then I'd come back every summer and work in the summer and, you know, get tons of money. It was like popping in the summer and everybody would come into the coffee shop. So yeah, I would chat up Rochelle. I mean, throughout the years, like every year I was in college and I saw from like, you know, from 14 to 15 and then 15 to 16, her appearance changed. She definitely went more goth. And so she liked to shop at Hot Topic, I think. I mean, who didn't? I did. She was totally just going through a regular teenage rebellion, and it looked like she changed her fashion. She wore chokers, you know, kind of cute. I didn't think anything of it. And Monica remembers that around this time, Rochelle started a blog on a website called LiveJournal.com. Now, this is a site that I am very familiar with. I had my own live journal when I was younger. I blogged pretty much all of my experiences being a 16-year-old. So. I get this vibe. Well, honestly, as we were researching, a lot of this, like, it's like she would go to a trip, like a field trip and come back and like, you know, blog on her live journal. And it really did make me think of you because it was around this time. Oh, yeah. Like, and she was all emo. I'm like, this is like, you know, a kindred spirit to Jack. Yeah. I'm like, did she go through, is she in a goth phase or is she in an emo phase? Emo phase. So that's what I'm thinking. So her blog that she had on live journal was called my crappy life. And like the byline was the inside look at an insane person. And she put her location as hell Alaska. So very emo vibes for sure. Very emo. And she was writing these blogs just about typical teen things, complaining about her parents, her appearance, and having to go to church. And in September of 2003, Rochelle wrote, I live in the suckiest place on earth, a shithole in Alaska. Six months later, she wrote, I had a bad day and a bad night. This is my warning to all of you. If you piss me off, you die. And obviously, like, that doesn't sound great, but it also just is like the musings of, like, 
an emo, angsty teenager. Yeah, who doesn't understand that those words could someday have a consequence. Yeah. <laughs> because the internet was just like on the precipice of what it is today, you know, with Live Journal. And then it's like, again, also, it's like if you're in an emo kid, like everything is like the end of the world. Everything is hell. It's always like referencing all these super dark things. So totally. again, it's not like a weird thing for me. But Given that Monica grew up in this place herself, she could actually kind of relate. So none of this really stood out as strange to her either. There's like a thousand people. It gets super dark in the winters. It's very stormy. I'm not going to disagree with her there. It was a pretty crappy life. Yeah, I'm with Monica and with you, Jack. This angsty blog stuff would appear as completely normal because every teen has a blog or a Tumblr or a Finsta or me, when I grew up, a diary that I wrote horrible things about my parents in because <laughs> wow. I was so Analog. angry. But I'm saying like, it's a, it's super normal to need a little outlet when you're a little angsty teen, right? Yeah. So it's somewhere for them to vent. And Rochelle's parents didn't seem to mind Rochelle's new moody lifestyle either. All of it was cool. All of it was fine until Rochelle started dating older men. And we're not saying like older by like, she's in 10th grade and they're in 11th. We're talking like 10 years older when she's 16 years old. Illegal older. <laughs> Illegal older. And that's that's a problem, given her age. The only very problematic thing is she did start to date older men. Like, I'm talking older, like mid-20s, like 24, 25. She basically started, she kind of dropped her very nerdy, scholastic friends and found these older guys. And they like to kind of wear trench coats and glare at people. I knew them. And the big tall one, Brian, I mean, I had known of him through high school. He was older than me. And so I knew of him and I was creeped out when I was younger. I mean, creepy vibes. Super creepy. Like I didn't want to be alone with him. Rochelle had transformed from a wholesome, scholastic overachiever to an angsty teen who was more interested in older men than her friends, and she would go on to date two older guys. So first, she dated this guy named Brian, and then she dated this guy named Jason. Brian and Jason were both 24 years old, and remember, Rachel was 16. So again, this is illegal. It's not just weird. So all three of them were friends and they would often go to Monica's coffee shop together where she'd see them. And seeing Rochelle, who was still so young with these adult men, made Monica feel really uncomfortable as it should. So you can only imagine how Rochelle's mother, Lori, felt about the whole situation. Right. And what's weirder is that Monica knew them. Remember, she's the babysitter. She's older. But she knew them as older kids at school. Right. <laughs> like she, they were even too old for her. Yeah. Which Ugh. demonstrates the whole situation. Like, I ran into her that summer, right? Because she'd come in for drinks and stuff. She was so friendly. She was normal. Sure, she was wearing black. The creepy thing was she had these weird guys always behind her. And that, I think, is what set her mom off. Her mom was like, no, we're not doing this. And I think she tried to stop it. That's at least the rumor around town. But Rochelle was going to be fine, right? We've all made mistakes dating boys and men that we shouldn't. This kind of thing doesn't have to define the rest of our lives. We're supposed to make the big mistakes when we're young, and the stakes aren't as high. So how did things play out? Let's jump ahead a few months to November of 2004. And by this point, Monica had returned to California, and she was living her life, minding her own business, until one day she received an unexpected email. To be honest, this really rocked me, and it rocked the whole community I mean, 
just that summer, before it all went down, I was making them all coffee drinks at the local coffee shop. Like, there's not a lot of places to go in town, so everyone would pop in. I made Lori's latte, a million, you know, a million times. And she was one of the tippers, right? So I had to go to the library to check the internet. And that's when I saw, I think, an email from back home. The pastor of the church or something was like, just so you know, something really nutty is going down. And I was like, what? I got an email that said, Lori Waterman has been murdered. And I was like, what? And I was just like, no, no. I mean, I was completely shocked. Someone had murdered 48-year-old Lori Waterman, a kind and beloved special education teacher. Why? What happened to her? Who could possibly want Lori, a wife and a mother, dead? To answer all these questions, you know the drill. We gotta go back. So the weekend of November 12th, Lori Waterman was home alone. Their son was away at college, and both husband Doc and daughter Rochelle were traveling. On Sunday, November 13th, Lori spent the evening volunteering for the Chamber of Commerce's annual dinner. Afterwards, she went home, put on her pajamas, and went to bed. But when Doc and Rochelle came home the next day, which is Sunday, around 3 p.m., Lori was nowhere to be found. In fact, she was gone. So mine and Jared's schedules have been absolutely freaking bonkers, but we're finally going to have some downtime at home. And I'm so excited to start, well, I'm so excited to have Jared start cooking because I can't cook. And we're doing that with Home Chef. I'll be a sous chef. So Home Chef makes your nightly routine so much easier and so much more exciting with a wide selection of delicious meals that arrive at your doorstep in the form of fresh, perfectly pre-proportioned ingredients and an easy to follow recipe card. And they have over 30 unique and flavorful chef curated meal options each week and Home Chef ensures your taste buds will literally never get bored. And if you're looking to master the art of cooking, you can check out their classic meal kit options, complete with chef-written step-by-step instructions. I'm going to have to follow those exactly because, like I said, I am a bad cook. And if you don't have time to cook, you can have hot, delicious meals on the table with a snap with their 15-minute recipes. So for a limited time only, go to homechef.com slash first for 75% off your first box. That is a good deal. Again, go to homechef.com slash first for 75% off. Okay, so if you are a watch person and you haven't heard of movement watches before, you are officially living under a rock because they are the freaking best. And for Valentine's Day, they're going all in on a massive sale. So you can give the most thoughtful, laughing gift a movement watch. So movement watches have this fresh modern design that's created by a team who knows what it means to go from a nine to five workday to five to nine good times, my favorite times, and every adventure in between. And when you gift a movement watch, they'll see it and think of you every day. So it is the gift that keeps on giving and one size fits all. So I just got my new movement watch. I got the signature square in gold and I just love it because it feels a little bit vintage, but modern at the same time. And I'm not usually even a watch person and I've been wearing it almost every day. So if you want to check out Movement, you've got the hookup with our friends at Movement. Save big on your best Valentine's Day gift ever with 20% off at MVMT.com and use code FIRST. That's MVMT.com, code FIRST for 20% off. On Sunday, November 14th, 2004, Father Doc and daughter Rochelle arrived at their home in Craig, Alaska. 
Doc, who was super involved as a volunteer leader for the Girl Scouts, had been in Juneau for a meeting with the Alaska Girl Scout Advisory Council. And Rochelle had been in Anchorage, where her volleyball team had taken fifth place at the state tournament. But when they got home, Rochelle's mother and Doc's wife, Lori, had completely vanished. When Doc and Rochelle arrived back on Sunday afternoon, Lori wasn't there, and neither was her minivan. Although there was a very odd, strange thing, there was like a bottle of wine left out on the counter, and it was empty. Weird. And so they they drove around. Like, Rochelle and Doc drove around looking for Lori. Okay. But then she didn't come back. They called the neighbor. They tried to find her. They were not finding her. And so they reported her missing. The odd circumstances Doc and Rochelle had returned to present a ton of hypotheticals. So questions, right? Did Lori drink this bottle of wine by herself? Did she then go driving somewhere? Had she gotten into an accident? Sure, that's possible, but unlikely because Lori wasn't even a drinker. So did she have someone over? Like, this was very weird. She definitely wouldn't have downed an entire bottle of wine and then gone for a joyride. So where was she? Questions were looming. Meanwhile, near the time that Doc reported Lori missing, several hunters discovered something odd about an hour's drive north of Craig, Alaska. And then a burning car would be found out in the middle of nowhere by a hunter. So this is like 40 miles. It's really far out. Like Prince of Wales doesn't have a lot of developed land. It is forest. And so I'm a little surprised they found it so quickly. They found a burned out car. And then the report missing person report came in and they're like, hey, that's the same car. And there were human remains. Immediately, two state troopers went in to investigate the still smoking Chrysler van that had been discovered in the woods. The hunters had found it at the bottom of the hill near a remote logging road. One of the responding officers later said that he thought the report of human remains was a mistake. He figured it was probably something like a dead bear near an abandoned vehicle. But when the officers arrived, they quickly realized this wasn't as simple as dead wildlife. The Chrysler van had been destroyed by this fire. The license plate had completely melted off and the entire area completely reeked of gasoline. And the police found no sign of a driver. Only a few human bones remained in the passenger seat. There was absolutely no doubt in the officer's mind that this was a murder. So on the island where Craig is located, there were only four law enforcement officers. That really is... That's so crazy. Yeah, because like, it's Alaska. It's so broad and the population is not dense. So it kind of does make sense, but it's so foreign yeah. for Jack and I who are in Southern California and there's like a cop every stop every sign. Second. Seriously. But two of the four reported to this crime scene. And these officers called Anchorage and requested that reinforcements travel to Craig, but it would take them a day or so to get there. And since Alaskan wildlife and winter storms can damage the crime scene, one of the officers stayed at the scene overnight to guard it. Meanwhile, at the waterman's house, the police found few clues. The tip of a rubber glove, fibers from a synthetic rope, a removed window screen, and a man's footprint on the windowsill. Someone had broken into the waterman's home. The next day, the reinforcement investigators from Anchorage arrived. They collected evidence, took photographs, and removed the bones that hadn't been eviscerated by the fire. 
there was only one medical examiner in the entire state of Alaska, so they flew the human remains to their office in Anchorage. But everyone in Craig already suspected what the ME would prove. The bones belonged to 48-year-old Lori Waterman. Lori Ann Martelli was born on April 16, 1956, to her mother, Merrill and her father, Don, in Tacoma, Washington. Lori had two sisters and one brother, and they spent their childhood in Tacoma. In the 1970s, Lori graduated from Curtis High School, and then she attended Clover Park Vocational Technical Institute, which was only a 15-minute drive from her hometown. It wasn't until Lori met a man that she left Tacoma, and that man was Carl Doc Waterman. Yeah, so Doc would take Lori all the way from Tacoma to Alaska. And people called him Doc because he was really, really smart. He was an army vet who flew helicopters in the Vietnam War. And by the time Doc exited the military in his early 30s, he was heavily decorated. So he received a distinguished flying cross, a bronze medal for heroism, an army commendation medal, and even a purple heart. So Lori fell really hard for this accomplished military man. So in 1978, 22-year-old Lori married 34-year-old Doc at a Catholic church in Tacoma. They had a son together, and then a few years later in August of 1988, Rochelle and Monica Waterman was born. And at some point, Doc moved the Waterman family to Anchorage, Alaska, where he flew helicopters professionally. But eventually, Doc left helicoptering behind, and instead he became a real estate agent and moved the family to Craig. And the Watermans really thrived in Craig, especially Lori. She was a special education teacher's aide at Craig Elementary School, and she was really good at it. Lori's students loved her. And in the early 2000s, she won the school district's Employee of the Year Award. And Lori's friends described her as incredibly giving, which makes sense because she was always volunteering. She served on boards for organizations like the local library in Little League. She helped out with Girl Scouts, her church, the PTA, and coached youth sports teams as well. She just loved being involved in her kids' activities. She was really the kind of mom who was at every fundraiser, every potluck, and every game. Rain or shine, Lori was always there and everyone was thrilled to see her. She was known for her quick wit and sense of humor, and she was outspoken. If Lori had something to say, she would say it. So it's not surprising that in 2004, when teenage Rachel began sneaking out experimenting with new religions like Wicca and dating mid-20s men when she was 16, Lori said something. In fact, Lori probably said a lot of some things. And as a result, Lori and Rochelle's relationship became heavily strained. But like, honestly, what's more typical than a teenage daughter not getting along with her mom? I feel like this literally happens to every single girl growing up, you know? And they were kind of just too busy to be mad at each other. Lori had all of her volunteer work, and Rochelle was just this really active kid. She went to Craig High School, where she was a high-achieving honor student, and she was on the academic decathlon team and sang in the honor choir. She was just doing a lot of shit. She was also a student athlete, playing both basketball and volleyball. She was popular, she had an active social life, and no criminal record. Plus, she was consistently posting on her blog, which had gained a little bit of a following. Right. And our first degree Monica remembered that Rochelle acted a little peculiar after her mom went missing. And several teachers at Rochelle's high school said the same thing. So to clarify, this was all before the connection was made between Lori's disappearance and the smoldering Chrysler van that the hunters found in the woods. Rochelle went to school the next morning 
Monday. And the gym teacher was like, she's acting real weird. And she kept saying, oh, my mom is missing. She probably got drunk and drove off a road. And I was like, what? That, that doesn't sound like Lori. She doesn't drink for one. Okay, really weird non sequitur, Rochelle. But honestly, trauma like this is unimaginable. For a teenage girl, there's really no right way to act after your mom has been reported missing. Plus, the police had been questioning Rochelle's family nonstop. I'm sure it was really anxiety-inducing. In fact, from the beginning, investigators had actually suspected that husband Doc had been the one to kill Lori. So maybe that's what she's feeling. I mean, there's a million ways to respond to this kind of crisis in someone's life, right? And the rumor around town, remember, it's a small town, was that Doc was cheating on Lori. So although Doc was in Juneau when everything went down, everyone wondered if he maybe hired someone to kill his wife. They actually looked at him first. Their marriage wasn't great. Doc and Lori, I think they were going to get a divorce once the kids are out of the house. That was the rumor around town. But he was out of town. But once the police looked into Doc's bank accounts and phone logs, they were able to clear him. Doc wasn't having an affair and he hadn't hired an assassin. He was just a husband who went away one weekend and returned to an absolute nightmare. Still, investigating officers suspected Lori's killer was a local person that she did know. Craig is only reachable by float plane. So it would have been easy to find a person that flew in, killed Lori, and left. So it's kind of like narrowing down who could actually be a suspect. Totally. Coincidentally, the state trooper who had first responded to the scene of the burned out van in the wilderness, the same one who stayed overnight to guard the scene, this guy, and this really demonstrates what a small town we're talking about here, this guy was friends of the Waterman family. His daughter had briefly dated the Waterman's son and also went to school with Rochelle. So this trooper knew that Rochelle and Lori's relationship had recently been tumultuous. And he also knew that Rochelle had been romantically involved with two older men, Brian Riddell and Jason Arendt. So this officer's little wheels in his brain are turning. If you're searching for leads, this seems like a good one to start with. So who were these guys and what do we know about them? Brian James Riddell was born on April 17th of 1980, and he grew up in Thorn Bay, which is about 40 miles away from Craig. As an adult, Brian owned a computer store in Craig, which is how he met Rochelle. She worked there part-time. When Rochelle was 15 years old, she and 23-year-old Brian dated, but uh, it didn't work out, which is a huge shocker because, I don't know, one of the reasons is it's completely illegal, but who am I to judge? But the ever good guy, Brian, introduced her to his childhood friend, Jason, and he and Rochelle hit it off as well. So Jason Allen Arendt was born January 1st of 1980. He was from Claw Walk, which is about seven miles from Craig. Jason was a janitor at a nearby school and lived in his mother's basement. He spent a lot of time playing video games and smoking weed. When Jason and Brian were 16, they met at a Bible camp in Juneau, Alaska. They became fast friends and declared themselves blood brothers. Brian later explained that this meant that they would do anything for each other. And upon meeting Rochelle, Jason quickly became like unhealthily obsessed, infatuated with her. And when they started dating, Rochelle, like we said, was 15 and he was the same age as his friend, which is 23. So it's super bizarre and weird. 
But here we are. And knowing how much Lori disliked Jason and Brian, this family friend police officer brought them in for questioning on Wednesday, November 17th. And at first, it kind of felt like these two guys were a dead end. Jason and Brian claimed that they'd been together the night that Lori was killed. Apparently, they watched the movie The Princess Bride over and over and over again for the entire night. I know that's a good movie, but like watching it over and over again, I don't, it's, it's bizarre. And it struck the officer as obviously really fucking suspicious, you know, to watch the movie on repeat for eight hours. Like what the hell is going on? It honestly screams lazy alibi. But regardless, the police didn't have anything other than their suspicions at this point to prove that these two guys were involved. So at this point, they're just let go. The next day, things get particularly interesting because a 911 call came in, but not the kind you think. Jason, one of their suspects, called 911. And he was calling to report that he'd been attacked at the school where he was a janitor. So according to him, his attacker was a big, tall man wearing a hooded jacket. And this man told Jason to stay away from Rochelle or something bad would happen to him. But listening to the story, the police, eh, they're skeptical. They're not really buying it. And they looked into it. And apparently there were a lot of people around when Jason alleged this attack happened at the school. Yet no one had seen or heard anything or heard his cries for help or anything like that. And even though Jason had a scratch down his throat from his quote-unquote attacker to the police, this wound seemed, you know, self-inflicted. And while speaking to the officers about this make-believe incident, the investigators pressed Jason about Lori's death. They pressed and they pressed and they pressed, and he denied it first, and finally, he started talking. They bring him in, and almost immediately, her boyfriend, Jason, turns and tells everything almost immediately. Rochelle, Jason, and Brian were really good friends. Rochelle was only dating Jason, but the three would spend time together all the time. They played Dungeons and Dragons. They got coffee at Monica's coffee shop. Kind of normal stuff that you do with friends, except for, you know, they were adults and Jason dating a child was dating a child yeah so, the <laughs> so normal except for that <laughs> and while they were hanging out Rochelle told Jason and Brian that her mother was emotionally and physically abusive she said that Lori beat her with a baseball bat threw her down flights of stairs brandished a knife at her and threatened to sell her into slavery these are insane accusations to make about your mother but allegedly Jason and Brian believed her And later, Rochelle would admit that none of these claims were true. It turns out, since Lori didn't approve of Rochelle's new boyfriend or boyfriends, however you want to look at it, Rochelle decided to create this really disgusting narrative about her mother, who was nothing but a caring and loving person. So according to Jason and Brian, they were genuinely worried for Rochelle's safety. And sometime in 2004, Rochelle told the two men she wished her mother was dead. So... In a deranged attempt at heroism, Brian and Jason offered to kill Lori, and Rochelle accepted, according to them. What the rumor around town is, is that she got her boyfriend and friend to kill her mom. And I feel like that rumor was pretty true. And that was the feeling around town, is that this was Rochelle's fault. She was the one who murdered Lori, despite who did it. She was the smart one. These guys didn't seem that smart at all. And she made sure she was gone and had an alibi. I just remember being in complete shock. So this entire situation is so fucking crazy. 
Was Rochelle joking and did things just get out of hand? Because if that's the case, things got way, way, way out of hand. Because in September of 2004, Brian and Jason made their first attempt at Lori's life. They planned to use a sniper rifle to kill Lori while she walked across an intersection. And after Lori was dead, the plan was that Rochelle and Jason would flee Craig together. When Jason told Rochelle their plan, she asked them to not go through with it. But apparently Jason never told Brian that Rochelle had changed her mind. So Brian so Brian went to the predetermined location and he set up this sniper rifle, only to realize that he'd forgotten a bolt that connected the rifle's barrel to its stock. Oh my God. This is so, like, it's making me sweat just thinking about this. Like, I, it's, it's so awful. Like, this poor awful. woman is just being, like, hunted. It really makes me uneasy. For no reason. <laughs> right? So... When Jason emailed Rochelle about their unsuccessful attempt at murdering her mother, by the way, yes, it was an email. I don't know what to make of that either because it was 2004. There were other ways to communicate, but email. Well, Rochelle didn't go to the police, even though now she realized like, hey, I wasn't serious about that, but now they're doing things to try to make this happen. She didn't do anything to stop it. She didn't tell her mom, Lori, that her life was in danger. Instead, she made a joke about it. In the email, Jason used the code phrase hunting trip to reference the planned attack. And in her corresponding email, Rochelle said that she was tempted to take a quote unquote hunting trip herself. So that's kind of like a, if it was about something else, it would be like a witty repartee, but it, it really does strike me as very young. Like she doesn't realize, she doesn't think it'll ever happen. I don't think, but it's so fucking heavy. Maybe she does. I mean, it was her idea in the first place. What do you think? I don't know. I, you know, you can go either way, especially when people are that young. She's 16. Her brain is not even close to being fully developed. Like she obviously, I don't think understands the consequences of saying these things to somebody who will actually go through with it. Like there are so many kids that have been like, Oh, I kill my parents. You know, there's a TikTok trend of a little boy saying it that like went viral, but like, you know, there's a huge difference from like venting and being broody and angsty to like actually meaning it. Totally. So several weeks later, Rochelle lied to Jason and Brian and she said that Lori had abused her again. And as a result, Jason and Brian devised a new plan to kill Rochelle's mother. This time they would kidnap Lori, kill her and make it look like a drunk driving accident. And that's exactly what they did. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program. And it's available on desktop or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways. And with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words, then phrases, and then sentences. And before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first-degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. 
visit rosettastone.com slash first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash first today. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Stodd, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. On November 14th of 2004, 24-year-old Brian and 24-year-old Jason killed 48-year-old Lori Waterman. This is exactly what happened, according to Jason and Brian's police interviews and court testimony. Rochelle's story is similar, and we're going to explain the differences in just a moment. Right. And when Rochelle realized that she and her father would be out of town the weekend of November 13th and 14th, she suggested to Jason and Brian that that would be the good weekend and a good time to get rid of Lori. That's what Jason told the police. He went on to say, Rochelle told me it would be a good opportunity to take care of things, to kill Lori. She didn't know it was going to happen. I know she wanted her dead. She told me she wanted her dead. So Jason and Brian finalized their murder plot. Since Brian was a huge guy, 6'5", and almost 300 pounds, he would be the main hitman. Typically, Brian had long hair and a beard, but to avoid leaving evidence behind, he shaved it all off. The two men then purchased duct tape, and plastic gloves from a local store. And shortly after midnight on Sunday, November 14th, Jason dropped Brian off near the Waterman's home. Brian quietly broke into the house through a window. Lori was already in bed, but she had heard a strange noise outside of her bedroom. The noise was Brian, but Lori didn't know that. She simply shut her bedroom door and climbed back into bed. Because, hello, it's Alaska. There's probably, like, a bear on your roof. (laughs) Literally. Or, you know what I mean? A wombat. I don't know where these things exist. But, like, there's, you know, 
you're just used to wildlife around and strange noises if you're in the wilderness. Right. But obviously the reality of what was happening is so fucking chilling. So Brian hid in the Waterman house for three hours waiting for Lori to fall asleep. And eventually he burst into her bedroom. He tied her up with a rope, forced her to drink a bottle of wine, gagged her with a towel, and then put her in the family van. He drove the van out of town and pulled over to the side of the road. And Brian needed to kill Lori without getting her clothes dirty so he could make it look like this was a drunk driving accident. Like that was their original plan. So he laid down a plastic bag, put Lori on the bag, and attempted to snap Lori's neck. But he couldn't. Instead, Brian resorted to beating Lori's throat with a flashlight over a dozen times. But still, Lori survived. So Brian put her back in the van, drove further, and stopped again. Then he covered Lori's mouth and nose with his hands, and she suffocated to death. It's really one of the most horrifying things I've just like ever heard of. It's it's terrible. He had so many time, like so many opportunities to be like to stop. Like, what am I doing? This is insane. He had to think he kept thinking this through, being like, Yep, I'm gonna go through with it. Yeah, it's it that didn't work. Insane. That didn't work. She's still alive, she's crying, she's begging. How could you do this to another person? I mean, it's it's so insane. Yeah, it's it's awful. So you know, Jason was supposed to meet up with Brian to help stage the scene to look like a drunk driving accident. But despite this plastic bag, Lori's body had become covered in mud. So Jason and Brian changed their plans. With Lori inside the van, Jason and Brian rolled the windows down, pushed it over the edge of the road, doused it with five gallons of gasoline, and set it on fire. Then they drove Jason's truck to a different remote spot and burned that one too. On Sunday, November 14th, Rochelle called Jason. She said that she noticed her mother and the van was gone. And Jason told Rochelle that he killed her mom and torched the van. And according to Jason, Rochelle responded with disappointment. But of course, it wasn't about her mom. She was sad that she wouldn't get to inherit the van. The same day, in between searching for Lori with her dad and reporting her missing to the police, Rochelle decided to write a blog post on her live journal. It read... Well, back from Anchorage, and it was an okay trip. I got kind of sick, but oh well. Did shopping, played V-ball. I got these incredibly awesome boots that go all the way up to my knees. I absolutely love them. We'll post a pic later. This is literally after (laughs) she heard all that about her mom, and she's just posting about her stupid knee-high boots. And then four days later, on November 18th, she wrote, just to let everyone know my mother was murdered. Like, what the fuck? Yeah, it sounds like a really strange, apathetic response to all of this, right? The police, however, despite how apathetic Rochelle seemed, were stunned and horrified by the level of brutality this murder possessed, right? These admissions, they were cold, they were calculated. And after learning Jason and Brian's version of events, the police immediately arrested them, obviously, on a slew of charges, including first-degree murder. Their bail was set at $25,000 each. Then the police took Rochelle in for questioning once again. As the interview started, the police confronted Rochelle with Jason and Brian's confessions and accused her of masterminding her mother's murder. But Rochelle denied everything. She's acting exactly as she, like, such a smart ass. It's so strange. Like, she's acting so casual and chill, and her mother was just horrifically killed. She doesn't seem to really feel any emotions until they're like, it was definitely your boyfriend and friend. And she's like, you're making it seem like I had something to do with this. 
she's just incredibly ballsy. This 16 year old to these police officers and this trooper, like, it's so strange. They bring her in for questioning and she denies, denies, denies. They say it's your boyfriend. And she's like, I didn't tell them to do this, right? Like, I don't know why they would do this. Rochelle admitted to telling Jason and Brian when she and her father would be gone that weekend. But she said this was kind of just casual conversation, not a request to assassinate her mother. Rochelle said that she mentioned to Jason and Brian something about killing her mother. But obviously, according to her, it was a joke. She clearly told them that she didn't mean it. And at this point, one of the police officers gives Rochelle a bit of a come-to-Jesus talk, and this is a brief excerpt from the interrogation. This officer said, This is not a game. This is not high school. Do you want us to stand up with the district attorney and tell them that you cooperated, you screwed up, you weren't thinking? Or do you want us to stand up and say that for five days you lied to us? I'm sitting over here shaking my head and watching you lie, and it's not helping you any. It's not helping you at all. You're a kid, and it's time that you act like an adult. Now, do you want to talk to him again and be straight with him? If you're straight with that man, I will stand up, he will stand up, and the DA will stand up and say she cooperated. It's your choice. That's where we're at. So after that, Rochelle's story started to shift a little. And Rochelle went from, I had no idea, to, I was pretty sure that Jason and Brian might try to kill her mother that weekend. She continued to insist that she told them not to do it. But she also said that she hadn't told them not to do it recently, even though she knew their plan was in the works. And this moment in Rochelle's interrogation becomes kind of important because later in court, Rochelle's defense attorneys would argue that police coerced a confession from her. They'll say that the intense speech the officer gave essentially sent the message that we don't like what you're saying right now and we'll make sure you go to prison if you don't tell us something else. We're not saying that interpretation is correct or incorrect, but the big question is, did Rochelle confess because it was true or did she confess because the officer told her she was out of options and she better do it or she's basically going to prison? Five days after her mother's body was discovered, 16-year-old Rochelle Waterman was arrested for first-degree murder, conspiracy to commit murder, second-degree murder, and kidnapping. And under Alaskan law, since Rochelle was a conspirator, she was responsible for the actions as a result of the conspiracy. She was charged as an adult, and her bail was set to $150,000. The city of Craig was stunned by this development. According to the Windsor Star, a law enforcement official said, everyone was pretty much in disbelief. The Waterman family was pretty prominent. Not only was the small town community of Craig devastated by Lori's death, but Rochelle's involvement felt like a second loss. Rochelle's father, Doc, believed the police bullied the confession out of her. He stood staunchly by Rochelle's side and blamed her boyfriend, Jason, for all of this instead. The Associated Press News reported that Doc said, This is not a man. He's got no reason to do any of this. He just did it for a lark or did it because he thought he could. But our first degree Monica thinks most of Craig found Rochelle to be the one at fault. The general consensus in the whole town is that she's an evil manipulator of men, right? She is. And when I look back at it, I'm like, she was 16. 16. Like, was it's hard. So at the time, though, I have to be honest. Like, I mean, she's so blasé, so casual. It's like she cared about the minivan. And she's like, I wanted that minivan. Why did you have to burn it? 
and not her mom. It makes me feel like she's evil. I mean, I don't really want to admit that because I feel like a 16-year-old who is having sex with 25-year-olds is very problematic, right? Except that she was the whole catalyst for it. I would like to be open-minded too, especially because, you know, now in hindsight, being older, I think, yeah, when you're that young, like being manipulated by men. But to be honest, it really seemed like she was the manipulator. And I think for the people that like knew her, that made sense. Like she was the charming one. She seemed to be the one in control at all times. But then can a 16-year-old really be in control? It is a good question, right? Like everyone in town thought Rochelle was the mastermind, but by definition, she was not supposed to be with these men like legally. Yeah. So isn't that kind of part of this problem? So it, it really like from a legal perspective, it would be super interesting to argue who is at fault. These people who shouldn't be having sexual contact with this minor yeah, or her for manipulating them. Like it is a tricky sort of not an ethical argument. Cause I think we all know where we how we feel with that. But from a legal perspective, who manipulated whom is a big question. Yeah. I mean, I could definitely see them using that for sure. Totally. It adds such a layer of complication and complexity to like the inner workings of how they could spin something for sure. Totally. So the case obviously gained nationwide attention. It's pretty fucking crazy. And newspapers dubbed Rochelle the live journal murderer. And according to the Sunday Telegraph, Rochelle was considered the first blogger to kill someone. And people flocked to Rochelle's blog, which fanned the media flames since some of her posts were kind of concerning. So nine months before the murder, Rochelle wrote, Don't you hate it when the little pieces of shit pile up to the point when you're at your breaking point and you want to scream and cry at the same time? I don't know whether to kill somebody myself or just curl up in fetal position under my covers and lay there for a couple of days. Either way, I'm not good. Current mood, depressed. And another post from two months before the murder reads, pain consumes my body, eating away, tearing at my flesh, no more tears left to cry. Nobody loves me. Nobody cares. Why continue on? I want out of these snares. At first, Rochelle, Jason, and Brian all pled innocent to first-degree murder. But by the end of June 2005, both Jason and Brian changed their pleas to guilty. Jason received 50 years in prison, while Brian received 99. In January of 2006, Rochelle's trial began. The prosecution argued that Jason and Brian killed Lori because Rochelle led them to believe she was being horrifically abused by her. And both Jason and Brian's testimony supported that version of events. But Rochelle's defense team painted a very different picture. They said Rochelle was not this cold-blooded mastermind of her mother's death, but a normal teenage girl at odds with a strict mother. She was just joking when she was talking about killing her mom. And Jason, on the other hand, was very serious about getting Lori out of the way. Lori didn't approve of his and Rochelle's relationship. So Jason had to get rid of Lori and solidify his place in Rochelle's life. And they showed letters to illustrate Jason's extreme fascination with his underage girlfriend. They also argued that if Rochelle had truly been in on the plot, she would have provided the men with more information about her house, like the location of the hidden house key or details of the house's layout. So after five days of deliberation, the jury, this is surprising, the jury was hung, which means, obviously, they're unable to reach a verdict. The judge declared a mistrial, and at this, Rochelle started crying in the courtroom. And a juror would later tell reporters that they were split 10 to 2 in favor of Rochelle's innocence. They all knew she was involved, 
but they disagreed as to whether she intended for her mother to die. Rochelle's retrial happened four years later in 2011. The prosecution's strategy was the same, except Jason refused to testify this time. But this time, Rochelle's defense lawyers had more ground. A judge had ruled that the confession that Rochelle gave to the police was coerced. And they used a letter from Lori to Rochelle to prove that their mother-daughter relationship was really on the mend. In the letter, Lori begins with, My dearest daughter, and apologizes for the tensions between the two of them. The defense claimed that the letter showed that Rochelle had no reason to kill her mother. Instead, this was all a plot put together by Jason, the psycho boyfriend. And on February 17th of 2011, 22-year-old, now she's 22, she was found guilty of negligent homicide, meaning she had the opportunity to stop the murder but did not. Rochelle was acquitted of murder in the first and second degrees. She was acquitted of conspiracy to commit murder, kidnapping, and all of the other charges. Guess what her sentence was? Three years in prison. Today, she's very much out and living in the polar opposite of Alaska, Florida. Her live journal blog is still active. Which is crazy because I didn't even think live journal was a thing. The whole thing is crazy. Like, and especially if I was her, it's like, go back in and delete it. <laughs> like, what do you People do? People do You're it out. for way less than murder. Yeah, you're out, right? Like... So bizarre. So our first degree, Monica, and many others were kind of baffled by the outcome and disappointed. A lot of people think she was way more culpable than her sentence reflects. I think like the rest of the whole town and island, I felt so enraged. Like how and how? I just, I think so many of us and still are confused. How can your child who you have loved and taken care of and nurtured and poured so many resources into, poured everything, your whole being into, turn around and murder you? Oh, my God. And then no accountability. No accountability. But it was ridiculous. Everyone was so pissed. So pissed. I, it felt like Lori needed to get some justice. And I, to be honest, I felt most upset for the surviving child who was in university and having his whole world ripped apart. Today, Monica is a mother, and naturally she views this case between a mother and a daughter through a different lens than she did almost 10 years ago. Lori Waterman was like just a really gentle person who like genuinely asked about how you were doing in school and, you know, like seemed to care about everyone. And then there was Rochelle, who was a real bright, friendly kid who was, yeah, be having a little teenage rebellion. I feel like it really influenced how I think about people. I am a mom now, and sometimes I still think, wow, you're really mad at me right now when I won't give you mac and cheese or something. I think, are you going to kill me over this one day? Not really, but like, of course, your little child is beautiful, is this amazing. I just can't get over that you can nurture this individual and just love them and give them so much opportunity and love. And it's not enough to not be safe from getting murdered by your child. Like Lori, from all accounts, and I mean, I haven't heard any thing substantiating that this abuse is real. Lori didn't seem like a pretty abusive person. She was pretty gentle. And I mean, her letter to Rochelle, it was like she was committed to working through it. 
and helping her daughter get through it. And I just, oh my God. (sighs) Teenage daughters, man, I'm terrified. So the question, who manipulated whom? Did Rochelle, a 16-year-old intelligent young woman who hated her mother at the time, convince her boyfriend and friend to slaughter her in cold blood? Or did Jason, a 24-year-old janitor living out of his mom's basement, want a concerned mother out of the way to better control his underage girlfriend? At the end of the day, we'll never know the real reason why Lori Waterman isn't still here today. As much as we want that answer to be clear... And as much as it would be easiest to say with certainty, yes, Rochelle knew this would happen, or no, Rochelle had no idea. Maybe the reality lives somewhere in between, between joking and not joking, between lighthearted and serious, between black and white. Reality sounds like it should be concrete, but often it's up to interpretation. Well, huge thank you to Monica for being our first degree for today's episode. If you are listening out there and you have a story to tell, please email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram, join our Facebook group. We're talking true crime all of the time. Join our Patreon for lots of bonus content, one new episode a week, and come back around tomorrow. We'll have a brand new episode of Killing Time right in your feed. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close, but not that close. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing and research by Andrea Marshbank. Sources for this episode are Court Documents, Court TV, Ancestry, Find a Grave, The News Tribune, AP News, White Horse Daily Star, The Windsor Star, Sunday Telegraph, Los Angeles Times, Fatal Frontier, Evil in Alaska, and Anchorage Daily News. And as always, our first degree guest is always our largest source.